What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. So how do you respond when you are confronted with your sin? Uh, or another question, how do you, uh, when you see someone else in sin, how do you respond to them? And, you know, tonight we're going to look at how the nation of Israel and the one who was leading them uh, at this time when they're in sin, you know, how they respond when Moses confronts them with sin. But we're also going to look at, you know, how Moses does that, how he approaches these people who are in sin. And we're going to see the response of those who are doing the sinful acts and and how they respond to those things. But, you know, uh, the last time we were together, we saw the sin that the the nation of Israel did. And, you know, they've done a lot of sins up to this point, but this one is probably uh, the worst of all. They come to Aaron, who's in charge as Moses is up on Mount Sinai. and, And Moses has been gone for a couple of weeks and you know they don't know if he's coming back or not and so they ask Aaron to make them a god uh, and so Aaron asks for all of their gold earrings and he you know takes their gold earrings he melts it uh, and after he gets that big chunk of gold he carves it into uh, the shape of a calf Uh, And so they have this golden calf that they declare to be their God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. And idolatry wasn't their only sin. We're told that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, this is a very tasteful way of describing just the horrific sin that they were committing. Because you just read that and you think, okay, they were eating and drinking a nice meal and they were playing a you know a couple board games you know like this, this was no big deal but that's not what this is speaking of at all when it speaks of drinking it's speaking of of drunkenness and if that was all that it was and it wouldn't be quite as bad but when it speaks of this uh, Hebrew word translated play it's actually speaking of sexual play Walter Kaiser wrote this the verb uh, sakah signifies drunken immoral orgies and sexual play And so when it says that they were, you know, eating and drinking and rose up to play, that they're in these drunken orgies as they are worshiping the golden calf. And so it's not just idolatry that their sin is, you know, it goes far beyond that, that that has led them to this drunkenness, to this sexual immorality. And so Moses, he's up on the mountain. This is what's happening. And if you remember last chapter, God actually tells Moses, hey, this is transpiring. And and Moses' initial response to that is to pray for the nation. But now as we come to the second half of chapter 32, Moses isn't just going to hear about the sin, he's going to see it firsthand. And we're going to see his response as he sees this sin. We're going to see how he confronts those who are committing this sin. And we're going to see how those who get confronted by their sin respond. Uh, And we're going to learn some things. We're going to learn how we should and shouldn't respond when confronted with sin. 
And we're also going to learn how do you deal with people in sin? How should you confront them? What should be some of the things that you should do uh, ultimately in order to help them in the sinful behavior that they find themselves in? And so, you know what? All of us sin. All of us actually sin regularly. Uh, and all of us are called out on us. You know, for those of us who are married, probably the person who calls us out the most is our spouse. You know, we have people who confront us with our sin. And so learning how we should and shouldn't respond, very practical, very important. But also, you know, in the body of Christ, you know, we should be there for people who are in sin. And we should know how to properly address that and come alongside of them. And so both of these things from the side of what Moses does and what the nation of Israel does, you know, these are good things that we should learn of how we should and shouldn't um, partake in these things. And so uh, hopefully we'll, we'll learn some practical stuff that we can use. And so first we're going to see how Moses responds. He's coming down. You know, I mean, this has been an amazing uh, 40 days. 40 days with God. God's giving him the law, writing it literally on tablets of stone. He has this wonderful privilege. He knows something bad's going on. Now he's about to come down and see it firsthand. And we're going to see how he responds, picking up where we left off in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 32. It says this. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It's not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf, which they had made, and burned it in the fire and ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink. So Moses starts his journey down the mountain. And if you remember when he went up the mountain, uh, Joshua went partway up with him. And Joshua has been just kind of sitting, you know, midway up the mountain. He hasn't been a part of the sinful behavior of the Israelites, but he also hasn't been, you know, blessed with the encounter that he, that Moses is having with God. And so Moses comes down halfway down the mountain. He grabs Joshua. And as they're walking down the rest of the way, Joshua says to Moses, Hey, I hear this noise. It's like the noise of war in the camp. Now remember, Moses knows there's, there's no war going on. God's already told him, you know, what's transpiring. And so he tells Joshua, it's not the noise of a shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing I hear. And then they get to the camp. Now they're able to see what's happening and Moses goes from hearing that they're worshiping this idol, from hearing of the debauchery that they're engaged in, and now he sees it firsthand of them dancing around this golden half, calf, and we know this, this drunken orgy that's taking place, and he sees all this firsthand, and now we see the response that he has. And I want us to note something that, you know, before this Moses prays, we see a love for the people. He intercedes on behalf of the people. He wants God to not destroy the people. Remember, God says, you know what? I'm just going to wipe these people out. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. Moses says, no, 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 no. Please, Lord, don't do that. At the end of this chapter, we're going to see an even greater aspect of love that demonstrates how much Moses loved these people. And I think sandwiched between those two, we see some harsh things 
We see some strict things that Moses does to these people. And we can lose sight of the fact that it's coming from someone who deeply loves them. He loves them at the beginning. He loves them at the end. He still loves them in the middle. But yet some of the actions that he does causes people to think, whoa, man, he is just you know losing it. No, he loves them. And that's so important for us to recognize as we look at this. And this is really has to be the foundation. If we're going to come to someone in sin, we're going to try to deal with it. We're going to try to help them. It's got to come from a place of love. You know, anytime we come because of any other reason than love, it never goes well. It's not the right foundation. It's not the right motivation. And so this has got to be the start. I'm going to you. I'm addressing this ultimately because I love you and I want what's best for you. And I truly believe that is where Moses is at. But now he sees what's happening. And we're told that his anger became hot and he cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of of the mountain. So Moses' initial response when he sees this sin, he sees it firsthand, is there is an anger that just goes up in him. We're told it gets hot. And his response is he takes these tablets that God has made with the laws of God on them and he throws them to the ground and breaks them. Now, I think it's important to note that biblically there is such a thing as righteous anger, an anger that is not sinful, you know, an anger that is directed towards sin. The anger comes because of sin that people are doing, sin that people are engaged in, where we're spoken of that God has this righteous anger towards sin. And so it's very possible that, that Moses is, is demonstrating this, that he has a righteous anger, an anger that's not full of sin, just an anger that's responding to sinful behavior. Uh, coming from a place of love towards the people, but just a hatred towards the sin that they're doing. And there's kind of a debate as to whether or not you know Moses is doing that. Is it just you know anger? Because he does have an anger problem. In his anger, he killed an Egyptian later on in his life. In his anger, he's going to do something that's going to keep him out of you know the promised land. And so it is possible that he just got so angry. It was a fleshly anger. It was a sinful anger. But I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubts and just think that it's a, a righteous anger. But no matter what, his response is to throw down these tablets you know and you know this is kind of a a symbolic thing because ultimately just a few weeks prior to this the nation of Israel says we will obey everything that God commands and so Moses goes up the mountain and God in his own way writes on these tablets of stone the commandments that the nation of Israel is now breaking And so very symbolic that he comes down and breaks these commandments that ultimately are establishing something that Israel has already broken. You know, they've broken what God has established in just a matter of weeks. And it's kind of this very symbolic thing that takes place here. But after Moses does this, notice what he does. He takes this burnt, or he takes the the golden calf and he burns it, he melts it, and then turns it into powder utterly destroying it. But notice what he does with the powder. He sprinkles it over their drinking water and he makes the children of Israel drink this water mixed with their golden calf that they were worshiping. You know, and I believe that Moses does this for three main reasons. First, to completely obliterate and destroy this idol. He recognizes this is something that is a huge problem with you guys. And I don't ever want this to be, you know, we're not just going to go put this in my tent. We're not just going to set this aside so some other time you can pull it out and worship it again. I am going to completely obliterate and destroy this idol that it's no longer something that you can be tempted to worship in the future. No remnant will be left. 
Second, he does this to show the foolishness of the sin of idolatry. They made the most ridiculous statement in the world. Here, Israel, is the God who took you out of Egypt. Yeah, this God that I just melted and didn't do anything about it, this God that I just spread all over the water and made you drink, yeah, that's the one that has all the power. That's the one that you're claiming took you out of Egypt. This God is powerless. He's nothing. He's just a chunk of gold. I just melted him. You know, he didn't gore me with his golden, you know, uh, horns. He didn't do anything because he's powerless and just shows, you know, the powerless and the foolishness of their sin. Third, it reveals the consequence of sin. Notice what Moses does. He, once he, you know, destroys this thing, he didn't have to turn it into powder and sprinkle it on the water and make them drink it. That was like, you know what? You guys are going to taste the bitterness of your choice. You've sinned. And I'm going to make you now drink this. And the water that you now drink is not going to taste good. And hopefully it'll be a good reminder of the bitterness of sin, of what sin brings into your life. You know, when we confront people with their sin, all three of these things that Moses did are a good response to us. You know, first we should do all that we can to help someone destroy the sin in their life. You know, that's not always possible. That's not always practical, but anything that we can do to help somebody destroy the sin, destroy whatever it is, you know, maybe it's a relationship that they have that's dragging them down, someone who's just continually drawing them in, you know, let's help them get away from that, get away from that situation. You know, maybe it's an addiction that we're helping them get through, you know, something, whatever it is, what we can do to help destroy that and help them get past that is something that we should choose to do because ultimately we're wanting to help them overcome their sin. Second, we should help them see the foolishness of their sin. I mean, all sin is foolishness. And to help them recognize it, help them to see, you know, I mean, obviously idolatry in this sense, you know, the, the silliness of, of believing that this piece of gold could actually do anything for you. But, you know, with any sin that we could try to help, you know, help people see that foolish reality. But even more important than that, help them see the consequences. Now, we might not be like Moses who actually, you know, spread some gold on water and make people drink it, but, you know, reveal to them, and maybe even in our own experience, this is where you're going. This is what's going to happen. This is where you're going to end up. These are the consequences that are going to come in your life if you continue down this road and this sinful behavior. Let them be aware of that. So Moses starts by confronting the nation of Israel as a whole, and now he's going to confront the person that he left in charge. Right when he leaves to go up the mountain, he leaves Aaron in charge of the nation of Israel. And Aaron has failed miserably in that role. He was the one who was supposed to keep the nation of Israel in the right way, not engaging in sinful things. And he's actually leading them in sinful things. And so now Moses is going to address his brother, Aaron. Verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin Upon them. So Moses confronts Aaron by asking Aaron about his sin. What did this people do to you, Aaron, that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And notice that in the way that Moses addresses Aaron is different than the rest of the people because it's like, hey, what is it that you've done that has brought this sin upon the people, Aaron? Because you're the one who was in charge. You're the one who's ultimately the, the spiritual leader of this people while I was up the mountain and you have failed in that. And your actions have brought the sin upon the people. And notice the people came to Aaron. They asked for a God. If he would have said no, that might have been the end of it. 
But no, he, he gives into it. He makes this for them. And so Moses calls him out on it. And I think this is a good way to deal with things. You know, the first way when approaching someone who's in sin is just to ask him about it. You know, why they're doing it. You know, that's kind of the, the first way to kind of engage and just bring it up, bring it to the forefront. Hey, I know what's happening and I want to know why you're doing this. And that kind of opens the door to, to bring up more things that we can do to help deal with that. And so Moses poses this question. And now it's Aaron's chance to respond. He's been called out. Moses has asked why he's done this. And Aaron now has the opportunity to respond to someone confronting him in sin. And we're going to see that Aaron does two very ungodly things in his response. And these are two things, before we start judging Aaron too quickly, these are two ungodly things that we often do as well when we are confronted by someone in our own sin. And so as we look at this, these are things we shouldn't do, but they are things that we typically do that we need to change doing Let's see what Aaron does in verses 22 through 24. So Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it in the fire. And this calf came out. The first ungodly thing Aaron does in his response to being confronted with sin is he blames others and accepts no blame for himself. And notice what he says. Moses, you know the people. They are set on evil and they ask me to make them a god. I mean, Moses is the people's fault. You know what they're like. I mean, there's just a bunch of evil people and they came with this evil notion of wanting me to make a God. And so I'm not to blame, they're to blame. If you want to talk to anyone, confront anyone, you know, go to talk to them because it's the evil people that ultimately are the reason. It's their fault, not mine. You know, when we're confronted with sin, this is one of our most common responses. We like to blame others and not accept any blame for ourselves. I mean, you go back to the very first sin in the Bible, that's the first response we have. God comes to Adam, Adam blames, well, it's the woman that you made. So he blames God and the woman, and then he comes to the woman, and she says, well, the devil made me do it. You know, right away, the first two responses are, let's blame someone else and not take responsibility for our own sin, and nothing's changed. From that point to now, this is such a common way in which we deal with improperly and ungodly when people confront us with sin. So we've got to be careful not to do that. God wants us to confess it, not to blame others, to uh, repent of it. So that's the first ungodly response is Aaron blames others and accepts no blame for himself. And the second ungodly thing that Aaron does is he gives a horrible excuse, a pathetic excuse, a kind of humorous excuse to try to justify his sin. Notice how Aaron claims this golden calf came to being. They gave me gold and I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. I mean, Moses, it is amazing. I just threw this lump of gold in the fire and it was like this miracle. This calf just popped out. I mean, it just came out all formed in this shape and I don't know how it happened. Now we know that he molded it and he used a tool to carve it. He made this calf in the shape of what it is, but yet he wants to say, hey, it just happened. Here's one of those excuses 
that come. Gives the classic, it just happened excuse. And all of us who were kids and all of us who have kids, we hear this excuse all the time. I can think of many instances in my own childhood. I remember my brother and I burned the carpet once and my mom comes in and says, what happened? I don't know what just happened. You know, like there's a dumb excuse. You don't know what to say. You're completely guilty, but yet you try to say something like that to, to justify what's going on. And that's what Aaron's doing. You know, it just happened. It just popped out. It was just, you know, there it is. I, I didn't have any part of it. I just put the gold in the fire. It did its own thing. So once again, Aaron deflecting, trying to justify, not accepting what he did and wanting to deal with what he did. You know, when confronted with our sin, this is another response. We like to make pretty pathetic excuses. You know, all excuses are bad. You know, some are a little more creative than others. This one's a pretty silly one. But none of them, you know, justify like we think they will. And at the end of the day, we need to recognize when confronted with our sin, that is not the response God wants us to have. He wants us to come to a place of humility, humble ourselves, admit our sin, repent of it, and deal with it in a godly way, which is not what we see here with Aaron. Now, even after Moses has destroyed the golden calf, they have actually drank the golden calf. It is now in their belly. He has now confronted the leader, Aaron, and rebuked him. We still see that there are people engaging in this sinful behavior. The calf's gone, but that hasn't stopped in the drunken orgies. The calf is gone, but the people are continuing in their sin. And so now Moses is going to have to deal with this group who hasn't stopped. He's come back down. He's trying to stop this sinful behavior. But there's still a group within the nation of Israel that's just continuing on and hasn't changed their behavior. Let's see what happens in verses 25 and 26. Now, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. So after Moses destroys the golden calf, after he confronts Aaron, now there's still people involved in this horrible sin and we're told that the people were still unrestrained. Now, this Hebrew word means to cast off all restraints. It has the idea of uncovering. You know, it's still speaking of this reality of what's happening. You know, this drunken orgy of unrestrained people just doing what is, you know, even said, you know, um, shame among their enemies. I mean, remember the people that are around them. I mean, they're some pretty screwed up people. And, and this, is, this activity is so horrible that's a shame among their enemies. And this is what some of the people are still doing there in the camp of Israel. And so Moses confronts this sin this time by giving the people an opportunity. I know not all of you are continuing in this, so I want to give you a choice. I want you to make a choice to stand on God's side or not. Which of you is going to do that? And this is what he says. Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. So it's kind of like drawing that line in the sand. And here's Moses here. And he's saying, any of you who wants to be on the Lord's side, you come over here and stand with me, showing that you are standing with the Lord. We're told all the Levites, to their honor, they side with the Lord and with Moses. But unfortunately, they're the only tribe. They're the only group of people that does this. 
When Moses makes this uh, statement, they're the only ones who respond by coming to him and standing with him and the Lord. Now, when making this declaration, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me, you know, I believe that Moses is asking three things from the people. Three things involved on being on the Lord's side. First, being on the Lord's side requires a decision. And that's what Moses is asking. You guys are going to have to make a decision now. You've decided to worship a golden calf. And now you're going to have to make a decision to say, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to stop this immorality. And I'm going to be on the Lord's side. I am asking you right now, you have to make a decision. But second, being on the Lord's side requires action. In order to be on the Lord's side, the people had to come to Moses. That's what he says. You guys got to move and come to me. You can't just claim it because you just claimed a couple weeks ago, we'll obey everything that God says. That didn't work so well. I don't want you just to make a decision. I want to see action connected with your decision. You need to come to me, stand with me, with the Lord. Third, being on the Lord's side requires separation. By coming to Moses, the people were separating themselves from the other people, separating themselves from the sinful behavior of the other people, and they're saying, you know what, we're willing to stand with God and be separate from those who aren't willing to stand with God. And so there was a decision and an action and a separation that ultimately Moses is asking when he poses this statement to the people. And I think this is a great thing for us. Another thing that as we confront sin, that we really need to help people realize, you know what, you got to make a choice. You're going to have to choose whether you're going to continue in your sin or you're going to choose to obey God. That's a choice that you're going to have to make. And with that choice, there comes a decision, there comes an action, and there comes a separation. And you need to do all three. And if you're not willing to, we got a problem. You know, and for those who you know, will claim, well, I'm a follower of Christ, but I'm not willing to do all those things. Like, well, wait a second. You know, this isn't right. You know, you should be willing to decide for Jesus, decide to act upon this, decide to separate yourself from the sinful behavior that you're in. You know, and when we present the gospel, these are the three things that we're ultimately presenting, wanting people to respond with. We're telling them they have a choice to make. You got to choose whether you're going to believe in Jesus Christ, believe in who he is, believe in what he's done on the cross. That's a decision that you have to make. And that decision needs to be followed by action. And it needs to be followed by separation, a repentance from what you used to do and how you used to live and say, Lord, I want to truly change my life. Not I'm just sorry about it, but I really want to see my life transformed. So the Levites, they're the only tribe that responds to Moses' call to stand with God. And now God is going to ask this group, as they are standing with him, to do something very difficult. Verses 27 through 29 tells us what that is. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. 
So God tells the Levites, the group that says, we're standing with you. We've made a choice. As Moses called us out, we came to him. Lord, we are standing with you. We're standing on your side. And God says, great, as you stand with me, I'm going to ask you to stand against those who won't stand with me. As you stand with me, I'm going to ask you to stand against those who are still sinning against me. And this is what God is asking of these guys. You're standing with me. And in that place of standing with me, you're going to stand against the sinful behavior of those who are in the nation of Israel. And this is what I need you to do. Every man of you put a sword on his side, and I want you to go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And we're told the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men fell that day. Now, when I used to look at this, I looked at this as more of a God is asking them just to wipe out everyone, it seems. You know, look what he says. Every man kill his brother, his companion, and his neighbor. I mean, that seems to kind of sum up the rest of the group. But there's millions of Israelites. If God was literally asking that, there'd be millions of dead people right now. There's only 3,000 people who ultimately die. And there's two thoughts to this. The first thought is that God was meaning that and in his mercy only had them kill 3,000 men. And, and that's a fine thought. That's kind of where I was for, for many years. But you know what? I've kind of come to a place in looking at what's been transpiring. And I feel like there's still this group. Because Moses came. He rebukes them. He makes them drink that water. He rebukes his brother. And then he comes and there's still this unrestrained group. And I believe that unrestrained group is this group who's still, you know, in this kind of, you know, drunken orgy. And this is the group that really God is targeting. And for me, I, I look at this and I think that God really is saying more, you know what? I don't want you guys to spare anyone who's still continually sinning against me. And if that means you got to kill your brother, if that means you got to compel your companion, if that means you got to kill your neighbor, don't spare them. If they're doing this and they haven't repented of this, then this is what I'm asking you. As you're standing with me, I'm asking you to go and kill them. And that 3,000 people are still continuing to do this. And these are the 3,000 that God takes care of. And so there's two different ways to look at it. You could see it as God's mercy and not wiping out millions or that God actually takes care of those who are continuing to sin against him. But either way, we see two important realities that come from this, especially from the perspective of the Levites. And this is the first thing. Those who stand with God have to stand against sin. And this is an important thing in our culture today because guess what? God is against sin. And if you're going to stand on his side you're going to ultimately have to stand against sin as well. And I think in the church world today, we're trying to say, I'll stand with God, but I'm not going to stand against sin. And it doesn't work that way. If you're truly going to stand with God and stand on his word and stand with what he says, then we're going to have to stand against sinful behavior. We're going to have to stand against these things in our culture. And for a lot of people, that's hard. You know, the guys that like Aaron who are men pleasers, who weren't willing to say no to the people because he wanted their you know, approval, that's not going to work. Moses, he's more concerned about what God thinks, and he's willing to say, you know what, I'm going to stand with the Lord. These Levites, they're willing to do something super difficult, saying, I'm willing to stand with the Lord and stand against sin. The second thing is there are consequences to sin, and sometimes God uses us to give out those consequences. And this is something that's really difficult. And, you know, we hope that we're never in this kind of place like the Levites are. But there are always consequences to sin. 
But the reality is there are times when God puts us in a role where he says, you are going to be the source, the vessel that I use to distribute my justice, my consequences. All of us who are parents, we're in that role. When our kids sin, God's most common way in which he deals with those sin is he says, you as a parent, I want you to discipline them. You as a parent, I called you to be in that role where I'm going to use you to exercise my discipline on these kids who are sinning against me, so hopefully they'll change. We have people who are judges in our courts today who ultimately are in a role where they are making decisions to punish sin, to punish lawbreakers. That God is saying, I have placed you in a role where I'm going to use you to exercise judgment. Romans tells us that it's one of the roles of government, to punish evil doers. And God's saying, I placed you in that. But you know what? In the church, leadership in the church, that's one of the roles. It's not a pleasant role. You know, uh, people like to, oh, I could be a pastor. I can stand up. I can teach. And it's like, well, that's the pleasant side. But what about the side when you have to deal with sinful behavior? Because the Bible speaks of, hey, there is a time when someone is in unrepentant sin where Paul says, you know what? The church leadership needs to give that person over to Satan. Get them out of the church, get them out of the uh, being an influence there and turn them over. Let them just indulge in what they're doing that will hopefully turn them back to the Lord as they suffer those consequences. But there's a point where God's saying, hey, the leadership in the church, they're going to now be the source that I use to execute judgments upon these people who are in unrepentant sin. And that's what we see here with the Levites as well. And sometimes God's going to call us to that. We're going to be in that kind of role, but we need to recognize there is consequence to sin and sometimes we're that person that God's saying, hey, I'm going to put you in this place so that you can help someone see that. Moses was in that role as well. So Moses has confronted the people, and now he's going to come to God on the behalf of the people. And we're going to see once again the hearts of Moses, the love of Moses for these people. He started the very first time he heard what they were doing. God says, I'm starting over with you, Moses. And he could have thought, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Lord, do it. No. Do not do that, Lord. Please spare them. I love them. Don't do this to them. Once again, he sees how horrible they've been. And let's see his response in verses 30 and 30 through 32. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. So now a day goes by, Moses has confronted everyone, you know, the Levites have killed 3,000 people. The next morning, Moses comes to the people again, and he says, you've committed a great sin. But now notice his response. Yeah, you guys are aware of what you've done. I hope so, at least. But now look at Moses' response. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. He didn't say, hey, you guys committed a great sin. <laughs> oh man, you're in trouble. Maybe I can go to the Lord on your behalf and make atonement for your sin. That's the heart that Moses has for these people. You guys have sinned and I want to do what I can to atone for that. So Moses goes up the mountain back to the Lord and notice what he says to the Lord. Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. 
Notice the huge heart of love that Moses is displaying towards the nation of Israel. Moses asks God to forgive the horrible sin of idolatry, of drunkenness, of sexual immorality. Lord, please forgive them. But if you won't forgive them, blot me out of your book. What a great love Moses is displaying. God, if you're not going to forgive the nation, then damn me with them. If you're not going to you know, forgive the sin, then ultimately I will take the same judgment and consequences that they have. You know, Moses has just heard because on the 40 days that he's there, he's told all about the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, these different laws that we're going to be looking at after this point. And so he's aware that over and over and over again, the way to deal with sin, according to God, is to have a death and bloodshed and sacrifice of an animal. And I think he comes to the realization of, you know, this is even beyond an animal. I am willing to be the person. I am willing to stand in the place of the nation of Israel. Lord, if you're going to not forgive them, then kill me and have me have the ultimate consequence as well. You know, this is the same love that Paul had for the nation of Israel as well. In Romans chapter 9, verse 3, Paul said, For I wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. I wish that I myself were cursed to hell if my countrymen, my fellow Jews, could go to heaven on my behalf. If that's what it would be, if I could go to hell for them, and if I could be sent to hell and the consequence would go on me, and that they could go to heaven because I did that, Paul said, I'd be willing. I love them so much that if that's what it took for me to go to hell, for them to go to heaven, then I'd do that. That's what Moses is ultimately saying as well. Now, I love you guys, but if I'm honest, I'm not going to go to hell for you. I mean, that's such a, I mean, to even think of that and to to recognize, you know, what that means. Both Moses and Paul had this deep love for the nation of Israel, but ultimately this points to something even better. This loving, sacrificial heart for their people is the same sacrificial heart that Jesus has, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole entire world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, who was sinless, was willing to take the sin of the world upon himself so that we could be righteous with him. That he, just like Moses, just like Paul, looks at and says, You know what, Father? I'm going to identify with them. I'm going to have you pour the judgment that they deserve onto me so that they, in turn, can escape that judgment, so that they can have eternal life with you. That's the heart that Moses is saying, Lord, let me do it. But God's saying, well, actually, Moses, you can't do it. Paul's saying, well, let me do it. No, Paul, you're not capable either. You guys are a bunch of sinners. You actually can't do it. But you know what? There will be one that I'm going to send, my son, and he will be able to take the judgment to take all of my wrath upon himself so that you can escape that, so that you don't have to be damned in hell for eternity, so that you can have a relationship with me. You know, Moses was the kind of leader the nation of Israel needed. Someone who would stand up against their sin, which was an important aspect, 
but also stand before God and intercede on their behalf. You know, there are a lot of leaders who are willing to stand up against the people, but don't love them enough to intercede before the Lord. Don't love them enough to say, you know what, I would die on their behalf. And we see the heart and love of Moses. And you'd have to love these people a lot to endure what he's going to endure for so long. Let's see how God responds to Moses' statement of, hey, if you're not going to forgive them, blot me out as well in the last few verses of chapter 32. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. God's response to Moses is, you know what, Moses, I'll spare the nation of Israel as a whole. And you know what, I'm going to continue to lead. My angel is going to go before you. I'm going to lead you to the promised land. My promises for the nation have not changed even because of their sin. But you know what, I do reserve the right to judge individual sinners. There are those that I might choose to blot out of my book. As a whole, the nation will be spared, but those who continue in these things, or there are those that I, I hold the right to continue to judge if I choose to. But you know what? Everybody's going to receive some judgment. The whole nation, for what they've done in this idolatry, they're going to receive judgment in the way of a plague. We're not sure exactly what plague comes, but God brings that upon them as a judgment to the sin. And it's a reminder, you know, there's no escaping the consequences of our sin except for the ultimate ones of hell. But in this life, you know, that's why God says, don't do it, <laughs> because there are natural consequences that I want to keep you from. That's why as parents, we tell our kids, don't do it, because there's natural consequences I want to spare you from. And they come. You know, even though, you know, really, it's really Moses at this point that's kind of more interceding on their behalf. But God's saying, hey, there's still going to be a consequence that's going to come because of the sin of the nation. So in these verses, we see five ways that we should respond to people in sin. First, we should do all we can to help the person in sin destroy the sin in their life. Second, we should help them to see the foolishness of their sin. Third, we should help them see the consequences of their sin. And fourth, we need to reveal to them the choice that they need to make, a choice to separate from their sin and a choice to separate to God and obey him. And in that choice, there's going to be a decision. There's going to be an action. There's going to be a separation that's involved in that. And fifth, we need to love them and intercede for them. And so these are all great things as we come and, you know, that's not something that we like to do. Maybe some of you have avoided that for most of your life. You know, it's not pleasant. It's not like, you know, what's your favorite thing to do? Oh, I like confronting people in sin. That's so fun. None of us like that, but oftentimes it's important. If you really love someone and you want to see them overcome that and they're in a place where they're not willing to do that on their own, they might need you to be that person who comes in these ways to help them to do that. But when you're on the other side, you know, when you're the uh, person who is being rebuked or having your sin pointed out, uh, there are four ways that we should and shouldn't respond. Most of them here on this list are what we shouldn't do. First, don't respond by blaming others. 
Second, don't respond with a horrible excuse to try and justify your sin. Third, don't respond by continuing to sin, which is what many of the nation of Israel did. And fourth, you should respond by humbling yourself, admitting your sin, and repenting of it. And so this chapter, you know, we, we see some great practical lessons for us. We're all sinful. We all engage in it. We all get called out on it. And so we need to know how we should and shouldn't respond. But also, you know, within the body of Christ, we should be those who love others enough to, in love, that be the heart, the motivation, the foundation, to come and help address these things with the goal of that person being restored, overcoming that sin, getting right with the Lord uh, for their own benefit, for the benefit of the body of Christ, for the benefits of yourself as well if they've been sinning against you. And so 